3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respects to elders, past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nations and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. And first up this morning, we're going to actually jump straight into an interview with Alison Gibbons um, from Amnesty. So Alison has 20 years, over 20 years' experience in the not-for-profit and government sector with qualifications in law, management and science. She was responsible for Amnesty's campaigning, organising and activism teams, and she's currently the Deputy National Director of Amnesty Australia. So I chatted with her last week about um, the abuse of young people in Banksy Hill Detention Centre. So just a heads up for listeners, this is a bit of an intense interview um, for first thing in the morning. Um, feel free to tune out and come back in in 15 minutes or so, but it is a really great discussion. So we'll be back shortly. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Thanks so much for speaking with me today, Alison. I was wondering, to begin, um, could you give us a bit of background on What's been going on at um, the Banksia Hill Detention Centre and what led to the initial claims um, of abuse of young people who are locked up in that centre? Sure. Well, um, as you probably know, in Australia at the moment, uh, young people under the age of 18 who have Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander background are 25 times more likely to be in the justice system than uh, non-Indigenous young people, which is a a shocking statistic and uh, the situation in Western Australia is particularly bad. It's the worst in the country. Western Australia has a uh, a large detention centre um, where they hold all the children between the ages of 10 and 18 in the state who are in detention, including boys and girls, in one centre. So there's up to 150 kids, or around average, on 150 kids locked up in Banksia Hill at any given time. And uh, the last year we have figures for, which was 2016-17, 856 kids went through Banksia Hill during that year. So it's quite a large centre. It's had a lot of problems over the years. Uh, There's been a series of reports produced by the Independent Inspector of Prisons in um, Western Australia. Uh, In fact, seven reports over six years. talking about issues with the detention centre and the most recent one came out in August. That report identified some really awful problems that had happened in the centre during 2017, including holding some young people uh, in solitary confinement for 10 days. So Amnesty International has been calling attention to these issues. We've been working for some time to reduce the over-representation of Indigenous young people in detention and we're extremely keen for the West Australian Government to implement international standards and to uh, make sure that Banksia Hill is not a place where solitary confinement of children is permitted into the future. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure listeners will be horrified to hear that that's happening, you know, today in 2018 um, to kids so young. And you mentioned that there was a, the most recent report came out in August. What were the findings of that report? So that report, um, that report was based on some allegations that were brought to the attention of the minister by Amnesty. Uh, some families and children in the centre came to us. Uh, 
talking about conditions in the centre which were uh, truly shocking and in, we felt were likely to be in breach of international standards. So we brought those to the attention of the Minister and, as I said, this independent inspector produced a report. And basically, uh, the report had five recommendations, which we strongly agree with. Uh, in summary, basically, um, they're about making sure that when there are allegations of mistreatment, they're addressed, uh, making sure that there is record-keeping because one of the most shocking aspects of the report is even the independent inspector was not able to find out what had happened to those children because CCTV footage was wiped, uh, records were not kept, and the information is just not there to, to explain how these children were treated uh, in the centre. Uh, but the one that we welcome the most strongly is a recommendation that Western Australia should update its legislation to be in line with international standards, including ruling out the use of uh, solitary confinement for children. Yeah, absolutely. And and just to go back to what you said about all the all the records being wiped or not accessible, I remember when I first heard that, I was like, how how is that even possible? Um, yes. Can you speak a bit to that? Like, is that is that a common, um, I guess, barrier that you come up against when trying to investigate allegations of abuse like this? Yes, it's it's um it has been historically been quite common. You'd be aware that there have been some major scandals in uh, in Dondale in the Northern Territory, um, in Victoria in ACT, where footage has emerged or or other records have emerged of uh, the treatment of children in detention centres, and generally it's taken the release of that kind of footage for the claims of children to be believed. Um, so those that. Those records are really important and the availability of those records to independent inspectors and other parties is critical. Uh, and Western Australia has a practice of wiping the CCTV footage after 28 days. So one of the recommendations of the inspector is that that, those rec those, that footage should be kept for a year, mm. for at least a year. Uh, I mean, that, that has been the problem. These are children who, you know, have got in trouble, they've had difficult lives, they have difficult behaviours and they make these allegations and it's very easy for people to dismiss them and write them off when there isn't accountability for the institutions. So Amnesty is proud to be part of shining a light on what is happening in these institutions and listening to those young people and amplifying their voices. Yeah, and I think that's such an important point that, you know, even long before um, this report and before um, footage or other records were released, you know, young people were talking about this and writing to their parents and other people to say, you know, to, to, to let them know what was going on. But as you say, that's so often dismissed um, by by institutions and by people in power. And it's so vital to be to be listening to young people and elevating their experiences and voices. Um, yes. Uh, I mean, Banksia has a terrible history which is documented of abusing children and, and once again, uh, we have evidence of these kind of abuses happening uh, on occasion throughout Australia. So Western Australia is not unique, but Western Australia has a particularly bad record. So some of the earlier uh, inspectors' reports found things like um, that staff did almost 13,000 strip searches over two years, over 2015-16, on children as young as 10 years old. Oh and gosh. in that they found only... And, and those 13,000 strip searches found only 10 items of contraband. So that is 13,000 times that children were forced to, you know... Uh, 
the strip search, which is just... These are children who are going to grow up and go into society who we should be supporting to become more functional members to to address their previous trauma, to improve their behaviour and it's hard to imagine that that kind of treatment is doing anything except creating future problems. Yeah, that's... I mean, I'm almost speechless. I didn't... Yeah, that's <laughs> such, you know, 13,000 times of, you know, inflicting essentially sexual, physical and emotional violence on these kids and as you say, re-traumatising them is, it's just, yeah, it's shocking beyond words and mm-hmm. I want to go back to um, the, a point that you just made then um, about, you know, how widespread these issues are but how recently a lot of um, attention has been on Dondale specifically in the Northern Territory with the um, yes. Royal Commission that um, was underway there but yes. And, and a lot of you know media attention and public discourse has um, almost cr- focused on Dondale as a site of exception. Um, but it seems to me that what you're saying is that actually uh, these issues are incredibly rife and widespread across in youth prisons across yes. the country. Look, we have had complaints from pretty much every, every facility, and over the last couple of years, every state has had. Uh, a scandal of some kind. Uh, look, to, to put a positive aspect to it, what's happened there arising from the Northern Territory Royal Commission is actually really promising. Um, in May of this year, the Northern Territory passed legislation that uh, reduce, reduces the use of isolation or separation of children. So that it makes it very, very difficult or impossible for children to be kept in solitary confinement. And we think that that legislation is a model that other states, including Western Australia, should be looking at. So um, the, this is based on you know, long-standing experts' opinions. So back in 2017, uh, the Australian Children's Commissioners and Guardian all got together and issued a joint statement saying that the use of isolation on a child or young person should be prohibited except when absolutely necessary and under a range of strict conditions and reporting and approvals. And we strongly agree with that and we think that legislation to put those standards in place is absolutely critical at the moment. Instead of the situation we saw in Banksia last year where children were held for 10 days in cells where they were out of their cells for less than two hours a day. So that's solitary confinement by international standards. Yeah, wow. So, yes. (laughs) So it can be addressed. Mm. Yeah, of course, there are so many things that um, can be done. Um, But just on that note, I wanted to ask, how effective do you think international standards are as as an accountability mechanism? Yeah, well, obviously international standards don't have the force of law in Australia, but they do have uh, a way of talking about what a, a civilised society would expect. And Australia is a rich, stable, democratic nation, and there is no reason why we shouldn't aspire to meet the, the minimum standards set internationally and I mean these standards are minimums they're not maximums (laughs) and at the moment Western Australia is a long way away from that standard I mean so part of that's a great role that international standards play that they remind us what the world expects of us and it's particularly important uh, in moments when politicians and the media are caught up in frenzies about particular um, crimes or you know moral panic to be able to take a step back and say hang on a minute 
there's nothing special here. There's no reason why Western Australia should have a lower rate of uh, a lower standard of human rights than the rest of the world. And here is the standard that we can hold ourselves against. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. But as you say as well, you know, they're unable to be um, mandated or enforced. And as we see on, for example, Nauru, um, you know, and the abuses the Australian government um, allegedly commits there against asylum seekers and refugees, international standards don't always, um, aren't always listened to, I guess, by the people that are in power. No, but I guess amnesty stands for bringing together the voices of people who believe that human rights are, are vitally important and that Australia sh- should be meeting those standards. And we just keep bringing those up to decision makers over and over again, whether they want to hear it or not. So, mm. um, you know, uh, over time, the, there's evidence that putting together the voices of people who care about these issues does make a difference. And, and that's really what amnesty's model is based on. Yeah, and you, you, um, we started this interview by um, you talking about the disproportionate impact um, of Banksy Hill and other youth prisons on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, young people and families. I was wondering if you could um, maybe speak to that a bit more and, yeah, and whether you see, um, I guess, youth prisons generally and the impacts they have as as fitting within, you know, one of the, I guess, a legacy of um, colonisation and, um, yeah, in this country. Yeah. Well, there's no question that the the disproportionate impact of all aspects of the justice system on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people really rises to a level where you can talk about systemic discrimination. There, you know, for instance, in Banksia, we... We don't have recent figures, but in 2015, um, because they stopped reporting stats in 2015, sorry, but prior to that, uh, there was up to around 75% of the children in Banksia had Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander heritage, just as, as an example. Um, you're probably aware that in the Northern Territory at the moment, 100% of the children in detention are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. So when you get a system that is that out of whack, you really need to, to ask yourself what is uh, underpinning that and how to address those discriminations and that historic disadvantage. So Amnesty really, uh, one of the things that we strongly advocate is community-led solutions. So obviously um, we don't think that children aged 10 to 14 should be in jail at all. We have a very strong uh, demand at the moment for uh, the age of criminal responsibility to be raised to 14. At the moment, children as young as 10 can, and in every state are, found guilty of being responsible for criminal behaviours and are put into detention. We think that in in a country like Australia, that's unacceptable. And so we're pushing for uh, for the age of criminal responsibility to be raised to recognise that children are not making those criminal decisions in the same way as adults. And uh, they need intervention to manage their behaviour, to address their needs, to uh, manage their health issues in many cases, and they don't need to be put into the uh, justice system. So that's our primary um, call uh to to address um, at the moment to address children going into the justice system, but but it recognises that there is um, like a long pipeline that leads those children in. So we're very interested in uh, diversion and early intervention programs, and there is strong evidence that uh, community-led programs, so 
whereby um, Aboriginal organisations are the most effective in uh, providing Aboriginal children with a pathway away from the justice system. So we very strongly support um, those Aboriginal-led solutions. So that was an interview I did with Alison Gibbons, the Deputy Director of Amnesty Australia, around um, Amnesty's role in calling out the abuse of young people in Banksy Hill Detention Centre in WA, and particularly the call to end solitary confinement um, and kid prisons generally. Guatemala, I'm Black Betty, and you can join me for Black Noise Radio each Thursday from 2 to 3pm. Join me each week as I serve you up a deadly fine offering of all things black as we explore black Australia and everything fabulous it has on the offer. We'll check out and see what's making black news locally and from right around Australia. And we'll explore all things Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and the deadly solid culture and people with a look at community news, views, music, culture and the arts. Hope you can join me for Black Noise Radio featuring black news, views, current affairs, music, culture and the arts from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. That's me, Black Betty. I'll see you Thursdays at 2. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio celebrating 40 years of 3CR is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just $30. You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history on sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. The Voice of West Papua now has a one-hour show. We have moved from Monday 6.30 to Tuesday 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. Yes, more news and music from West Papua. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. The track that we were listening to just before was Busy Bee by Lady Lash, um, which I have had stuck in my head all week. Uh, I really recommend you also check out the rest of her work. And now I think we're going to jump into another interview, but this one we recorded some weeks ago together. 
Yeah, actually, um, this was an interview at the Ujamaa Festival on the 4th of August um, earlier this year. So um, this um, Ujamaa Festival was in response to the African gangs and uh, rhetoric and um, all the division um, being done by uh, a lot of commentators, political or media and thing. Um, so we had an interview with Nelson Deng. Um, was giving us a bit of a view into um, their perspective as well. So, yeah, we'll jump right into that. Yeah, and then yeah. afterwards maybe we'll have a chat about it. Yeah, definitely. You know, like two months later, I guess, yeah. where things are at. <laughs> no, we're waiting for a pitch, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So you're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR. It's 7.26, and um, you're about to hear an interview with Nelson Deng. And we are back again at Witten Oval in Fuskray at the Ujamaa African Festival. And we are here with uh, yet another guest, um, one of uh, the organizers. If you could introduce yourself to us, please. Uh, my name is Nelson Deng, and uh, I'm one of the South Sudanese uh, uh, community member. And uh, we are here, like you know, uh, this beautiful weather, celebrating the diversity, like through uh, the Jama Community Festival. Uh, and basically, uh, we are here showcase our culture, our food, and you know, uh, music, you know, having fun. Uh, in, while watching the game, Western Bulldog, <laughs> you know, they have been very supportive, like you know, uh, supporting community and all that. Uh, so yeah. Uh, into that point, yeah, I've noticed the Western Bulldogs even in our social media and some of their um, statements as well in support of diversity, and they are coming even standing up for the African community and South Sudanese community, um, especially through the political rhetoric that's been going on, and especially in the media. Um, why is it important for such organizations as this and um, such clubs as the Western Bulldogs um, to stand up for the right thing and for diversity and everything? Uh, I think uh, Western Bulldogs uh, in particular, uh, you know, have been doing a lot of work with the community, you know, dating past, and uh, they continue to do great work with the community. And I think, you know, uh, given the circumstances that we're in now as a community, like you know, the, the negative media portrayal and all that, I think it's an opportunity like for them to kind of like uh, you know uh, show and uh, you know kind of like uh, display our image that you know we just like any other community you know we're not that negative like the media you know uh, is constantly portraying us and it's another chance as well for the people to come and look at their culture or music or food and all that and, you know sometime you know is is a great great start you know to get to know someone over music and you know kind of like you know uh, yeah you're right nothing brings people together better than food and uh, yeah. you know, nice some beverages and yeah, everything yeah, uh, <laughs> um just uh just onto that if you can give us a visual of what you're seeing today and um, how it makes you feel to see um such positivity um today um, in light of all the neg- negative um, portrayals as you stated and all the bad rhetoric and the attacks by some politicians irresponsibly of that well to be honest I'm glad you know a lot of uh, uh, people are here you name it you know those from uh, service providers the government you know, and in particular uh, the presence of the police here is really good uh, uh, for them to be part of this uh, festival I think uh, you know is another 
platform where we can mingle, get to know each other and all that, and for them to get to know community members as well. And as you can see, we have uh, all our young kids and, uh, and youth members as well. I mean, uh, uh, community leaders and, and youth leaders. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a, a great platform to kind of like network and share ideas and get to know each other. And uh, for, you know, for young kids as well to get to dance with the police and get to know them and you know, create that friendship atmo atmosphere, you know. And most importantly, I, I think uh, it's uh, time for a community to kind of like start showing the positivity you know, in so many ways, be it in forty, where because the media is ha now is dominating like uh, the views, the negative views, and I think you know I would have loved to see a lot of the media uh, present here so that they can show the positive things that we're doing here, uh, and we all know you know what is out there is not you know what our community represent, and uh, it's a you know it's a good start you know kind of like show the rest of the community and then that we just like any other community you know we're not bad people we're good people you know that is certainly i agree with you about that being sustenance myself <laughs> i like to give that uh, you touched on um, how positive it is and how good it is that we even have the police presence here um that even their presence in this time is not in anticipation of trouble per se but it is actually in um them making an effort to bridge the gap um especially since the over policing of our youth um, that has been happening. Um, why is this important that we bridge the gap in a positive way and how will this, how do you see this working in your own perspective um, towards building a, um, a better rapport with police even in dealing with them in the future, for, especially for some of our youth? Well, uh, uh, quite frankly, uh, I'm going to be honest, like we have all seen the media portrayal and, and, uh, and most of it is not based on empirical evidence so it is intentionally done, like intentional vilification, and we know the you know the justification for all this is all politics. And, but for us, is, is, this is not funny, you know, for politicians to play with our community. So for them, it's like they want to gain votes or whatever they want to achieve, and then they want to create that moral panic, you know, to kind of like pass whatever the policy they want and all that, using us as a ladder. And we are saying, look, you know, I think it's enough is enough. Uh, we are a community. We are good people, just like anyone. Our youth have issues, just like any other community. Uh, we shouldn't be used as a ladder to to gain whatever you're gaining. But the message is that you know you are doing us harm by uh, portraying us constantly uh, bad. And to make the matter worse, not based on any empirical evidence, you know, it's harming the community. And I think it's the time for community to stand out and show our positivity to counter uh, what the media or the narrative that media is putting through. And I think, uh, you know, uh, I like the work of those, you know, good Australian and the rest of the people who are standing with us to kind of like uh, prove our point. We shouldn't be really doing this because, like, for example, you know, the impact of uh, media portrayal. It's kind of like make individual. You have to police yourself almost wherever you go, and you have to regulate your, you know, what am I? What was my next step? How am I going to behave when I step out? You know. It's this constant thing, you know, it's so negative and, and, and it's harming a lot of our, our community members. And we are saying, look, we're not all that, we are good people. They know it, but they still go ahead and do it anyway. So I think it's, it's our duty as well to go out there and counter them with positivity. And, you know, look, you can see here, all like, you know, we have any 
I mean, you name it, like we have a diverse faces here already, you can see, like, you know, we're all Australian, that's what counts, we're all Australian, I and mean, therefore we shouldn't be kind of like, you know, separated in, in, in politics and all that. And I think the media is, you know, have to stand up and have some moral, you know, obligation that, you know, not to damage the community the way, I do, the way they are doing it. It's not fun. And I think it's time for them to go and have a think. You are damaging someone's image and you are intentionally doing this. But the greater harm you're doing, I, I don't think if they have a second thought of it, you know, you won't feel good about it. You know? It's not funny. It's not something that you can use as a, you know, politics or whatever the case might be. We've noticed something that's very clear here. Um, given all the, the media reporting as of late, and the uh, negative and the rhetoric and everything with it. Um, can you tell us, are there any media present today here? Quite frankly, as you can see, there's none. And, 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 and you, 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 you can do your math. You know, why is it the case? Because it doesn't sell paper. You know, <laughs> you know it's, we, there's a lot of positivity out here. As you can see, we're all having fun. All people from different walk of life enjoying the game at the same time, but this should be like you know where all the media, you know their presence should be here, but none of them is here. They're not interested in the you know positive side of a community, you know. Exactly. And that's exactly <laughs> the point, you know. There I say maybe they're not here because this does not fit their narrative and what they're trying to get across. It does not fit their fear mongering and the fact that it's being, there's a lot of light here. It's not darkness which where they actually play as I could say. Um, is there a surprise there? I'm not surprised personally. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's something that uh, you know, we're all aware of it and uh, of course like you said, you know uh, it doesn't fit their narrative and therefore they're not interested and uh, on top of that, you know, it's not going to sell paper. So no one will be really interested, you know, but this is exactly what sh they should be doing. You know, there are, there are a lot of uh, positivity in the community that they don't get, you know, uh, seen by the, you know, the mainstream or the rest of the uh, society because the media uh, tend to block that kind of like a, a gate, you know, and they are, not, they are now interested in uh, whatever little you know, small things, so ne I mean, negative things, that's exactly what they just get and then blow it out, you know, proportion, you know. So it's, I'm not surprised personally. Oh, thank you for that. Uh, I dare add to it um, and say that even in, even though that this mainstream media is not here, let's say something that I've seen um, lately as when this whole negative rhetoric started, is that through this whole darkness, it actually has caused people to come together. And like they say, the light shines brightest in the dark. And this is where we are now. So even if we were to say we are the optimistic people that we are, we say out of all of this, something good has come. Um, people have become a lot more united. And more Australians have actually stood up um, and fought this, um, this rhetoric, this um, baseless accusations uh, made by the media and politicians. And um, yeah, so that is that is something positive to, to look forward to. And the next time there's a festival, perhaps more people will show up more than there actually already are today. There's a lot, quite a lot of people, and um, enjoying enjoying some um, some footy, some food, and some music and everything. And yes, I also see some South Sudanese on the football field. Exactly. And so yeah, there you go for integration. And let me let me say one more thing. I just want to say thank you for being here, and uh, people like you. 
this is exactly like what we want. You know, people who are interested, you know, in showing the positive image of the community. Thanks a lot for being here, and we are really very grateful to have you here and to kind of like uh, you know take our voices out there and let, let those who are not interested hear our voices uh, and that you know we are just you know just like any other Australian community. We're friendly. We here to like have fun with anyone, share food, play music, and thanks a lot for coming and you know uh, to support us and also to you know put our voices out there. No, thank thank you very much for the work you're also doing for the community. Um, it is very kind words that you said, and certainly good to feel appreciated. And who's this little man here? Uh, so I have some little 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 kids who would like to join us on our radio. What's your name, young man? Marcus. Marcus, where are you from, Marcus? Marcus, from from my house. From your house? Oh, that is awesome. How old are you? Three. Sorry, I didn't hear that. Three. Three years old, really? Ah, how that's very old, isn't it? <laughs> are you enjoying yourself today? Okay, Marcus is nodding. So thank thank you, Marcus, for joining us at the Ujama Festival today. And he just walked away. That's great. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, join me at 11 every Friday for some black and deadly sound. Appreciate community radio 855 on the AM dial. Put on the pieces of the people. Yeah, join me at 11 every Friday for some black and deadly sound. Appreciate community radio 855 on the AM 8.55 a.m. Uh, the interview you just heard was um, interviewed at the Ujamaa Festival on the 4th of August with uh, Nelson Deng. Uh, we're discussing the conception of that festival and the reason um, it came about after the African gangs um, campaign by the media, albeit um, negative, um, and how it was um, counteracted with positi- positivity mm. and bringing people together to share some food and music and have a dance. Yeah, and it's really nice to play that this morning, actually, because that was the first. That was the first time both of us had done sort of, you know, vox pops out in the field. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, it was interesting. I didn't know how it um how it would sound, but um, yeah. Yeah, uh, I think we did well. But I like at the end there. Uh, my favorite, Marcus. Mm. One, yeah, even though he didn't talk to me much, I think he made my day. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Apech, I wanted to ask, like, how? Because we did that almost two months ago now. Yes. Um, how, do you reckon, has stuff changed much since then? Uh, I, I wouldn't say changed, but we are going in the right direction. Um, so if we look at this historically, um, years ago when this kind of rhetoric would happen, there wouldn't be this kind of reaction. Um, say thankfully now to, to just the, the rise of the work on social media and Twitter and being able to um, bring people together, being able to galvanize and everything. And also, I think... Um, Many of the um, fellow Australians are able to now see through um, all the all the lies. Are able to see through the setups that are being made um, by some politicians. Um, although some claims, you know, may have some kind of reason, um, we can see these things are blown way out of pro- um, 
proportion just so they can get a um, certain reaction, so they can get some kind of political maneuvering um, done. So um, in the way of change, um, I'd say we are making progress. Um, not exactly um, change, but uh, I am optimistic that change will um, come through. And if um, if we do call this kind of progress change, then I guess, yes, we can label it like that. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I mean, the Ujama Festival, it was such a great afternoon. Um, and like we sort of spoke about in that interview, one thing that was really disappointing, I guess, um, was, you know, given at that time... Um, here in Nam, there was a lot of incredibly toxic um, narratives being put forward by the yeah. media about the so-called, um, you know, African gangs yep. stuff. Um, but then there are actually no media present. Yeah, that's what was event. surprising. Mm. Uh, I mean, if this was something, given the kind of resources they've put into painting um, this entire community, um, as criminals or as people that are uncivilized or always fighting or anything. And then the moment that something this positive is happening and people are coming together, why would they not be interested if truly um, their intention was to report news and um, to give, as journalists should or some media, to give um, news in context or to you know show both sides of an argument or something like that? Why were they not there? And this... Mm-hmm kind of confirms for me that they only had a specific narrative um, to put out there, which means they were being a media arm for some yeah, higher power somewhere. Exactly. <laughs> well, I was trying to be polite about it, but yes, that it they had an agenda, and this festival, albeit a nice, positive, happy festival, did not fit their agenda, did not fit their narrative. So, of course, why would they do that? Um, will affect all their newspaper, their selling all the clicking and all that people want. Mm-hmm. And it's just something with society. We are pulled in into, I don't know if it's excitement or whatever, but we seem to pay more attention to negative things um, than we do to, to the positive things. That's why, you know, mm-hmm. they say we yawn at creation and thrill in dr- destruction. So this is exactly what it is here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, and maybe we could also let listeners know about, because um, it was around that exact same time that we did our special broadcast, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a, it was a very good um, special broadcast where we had a, an interesting panel um, around the um, African gangs and going beyond um, that issue. So we have had some um, great points made by uh, many of our panelists um, there. So it was... Um, so another thing that another positive thing that came out, we were able to give some kind of a, an in-depth view um, about mm. some of the things that are going on behind the curtain, about some of the things that are not mentioned throughout this whole um, news reporting and everything. So yeah. Um, and yeah, just for listeners who aren't aware, so essentially we had um, we had what four amazing guests live in the studio yes. um, for a special broadcast that we called um, "Enough Is Enough" beyond hashtag African Gangs, and so we were joined by um, Mikhail Mayek, by Mariki Onis, by Saba Almeo, and by Arijnua as well. Yes. And it was facilitated by yourself and the beautiful Shahrazad as well, who can't be here today. Yes. Um, because, actually, just shout out to Shahrazad. She just got her PhD confirmation this week. Yeah, um, congratulations, so Shahrazad. Um, if she's listening, I hope she's not. I hope she's sleeping. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I would really... 
I mean, you know, shameless self-promotion, but I'd really encourage listeners, if you haven't already, to check out um, that special broadcast that we did, Enough is Enough, beyond hashtag African Gangs. It's available on the Thursday Breakfast um, website as a podcast. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, sorry, who and, was Yeah, no, um, also just in, in, in line with that, and um, I, I felt like I, I should mention, so yesterday, um, or last night, um, there was the Victorian Multicultural Awards Night. Um I'd like to mention some of the people that have been fighting um throughout this whole negative media campaign um like um Makir Mayak Nyado Nyon and last night specifically um uh, our friend Benjamin Miller um had um, was awarded um yesterday for media excellence um and exemplary reporting of the issues affecting African Australians so yeah just a quick shout out and a congratulations to Benjamin on that mm-hmm. and all the great work everyone else has been doing um in standing up and fighting this negative um stereotyping and this divisive nature of um this reporting that's been happening and how um this has actually helped so if i was to talk from a personal perspective it is actually encouraging as opposed to years ago where um community had to go this alone. But um, right now that standing in solidarity, African community and the wider Australian community into fighting this narrative um, shows mm-hmm. that, you know, in the face of this negativity and evil, we are able to actually stand together and not allow to be divided. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and also particularly, I guess, one of the main themes that came out of the panel was solidarity between African communities here in Nam and also First Nations communities here in Nam Absolutely. in challenging and resisting, you know, these foundational narratives of anti-blackness, um, yeah. here on these occupied lands. Um, so, which is something that we definitely want to keep talking about on Thursday breakfast. Yeah, but also, like you said, we really want to be going out to more community events and, you know, bringing back those exactly. voices we want to be bringing, and those stories. Exactly. Bringing the light on, um, onto that. I don't think, um, it's talked about enough. Um, and um yes it is good to um to be united in that front since the things that are affecting us are um there are some common grounds there and everything so um it is it is much better when people are united than being divided yes Now we're going to go to have a chat with Charindev Singh, who's a human rights advocate, educator and paralegal with a long history of working with community legal centres and grassroots social justice movements. Charindev is um, systemic advocacy focused on death in custody, family violence and racialised punishment, and he is a member of the Abolitionist and Transformative Justice Centre. This morning we're going to be talking about an action that happened where activists occupied the office building of Serco's Melbourne headquarters. Good morning, Charindev. Hi, and good day, and good day to our listeners too. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. No problem. I was wondering, could we begin by maybe just, um, could you give us a bit of background about the action that occurred on Monday, both, you know, what what motivated it and what were your demands? You know, Monday's action targeting um, Serco and the presenting presenting against young people at Parkville um, was motivated by um, marking the end of the, um, the three-week prison strike in Turtle, Occupy Turtle Island, which occurred over um, 12 states of the United States in, 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 in prisons, in immigration detention centres, and also one, one, um, one province of, of Canada as well. So it, it is um, the, the largest... Um, insurgent-led prison strike um, 
in, I think, in US history. And it comes after the 2016 prison strike that focused on solitary confinement. So it is an abolitionist-led um, anti-slavery uh, movement from within um, the, uh, the US um, carceral system um, that seeks um, freedom and liberation, um, seeks freedom from slavery-like exploitation of prison labour, and seeks a change to inhumane conditions and things like the right to vote. Um, so the the prison strike um, began it began in on the 21st of August, the day of uh, the anniversary of the murder of George Jackson, who was a, a, a revolutionary in the in and he was murdered in uh, San Quentin, and ends on the uh, on the 9th of. Um, September, which is the anniversary of the beginning of the Attica prison uprising um, that um, ended in a massacre on the 13th of September. And so we wanted to mark um, the, the, the ending of that process, uh, of, of this period uh, on the 10th so that it would be the 9th in the, in, in the global north in solidarity because one, one of the key distinguishing features of the prison strike was the amount of solidarity actions on the outside and the amount of media that was um, instigated by the prison strike and the ability to connect abolitionists from inside prisons to abolitionists on outside prisons. And also the importance of targeting the um, purveyors of um, prison slavery and prison colonisation and uh, occupying their buildings while they are occupying uh, and running prisons on occupied land. Mm. And just for listeners who aren't aware, could you just explain a bit about CERCO and their role in the yeah, colonial and imperial prison industrial complex here sure. in the region? Sure. I mean, CERCO is one of the um, one of the three largest um, prison detention and deportation um, companies, as well as doing you know a host of other other contracted out and privatised services from you know, Centrelink to um, cleaning, always on, on, always on very low wages and conditions, and um, it's a, it's a, you know, markedly anti-union company as well. So we um, identified um, Serco having their Australian headquarters on the 14th floor of 535 Burke Street, and um, activists um, occupied that building for. a substantial amount of time, had to face down quite violent and intimidating security from within the building, um, and then a police presence, and um, was really trying to highlight the, 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 the visceral presence of Serco um, in, 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 in the city of Melbourne or Nam, you know, on occupied country land, and um, bring attention to um, its, its presence, you know, and expose its presence here. Um, both inside inside the building and outside of the building, um, through 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 the banners, through chalking, through chanting, and and through you know sort of occupying the belly of the beast, and uh, just just like the um, the detention and death camps in Nauru and Manus Island are managed uh, or operated from Australian border force in Docklands, we wanted to draw the connection. To kind of corporate carcerialism, um, in terms of Serco as well. And also the, the, the target, Serco's targeting of 
um, expanding in prison populations like it's um, Batten Private Women's Prison in Queensland. Um, it's the massive 3,000 cell uh, prison um, in Grafton. Um, the deaths in custody that are continuing and happened uh, last week in Yonga Hill and the Yonga Hill prison uprising that followed the indifference that um, surrounded the death in custody, the 19th death in custody, the immigration detention in our ears. So that's why we we um, uh, we were present and occupied the mm. And I think that's such a vital point that um, around the you know the, the corporatized castle complex that um, exists and is enacted you know right here in the CBD because I feel like often people think that these abuses happen elsewhere or far away. Um, no, but... they're, 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 they're enabled right in the centre of our cities. Exactly. They're surrounded by um, the largest corporate law firms and the, the, the largest, um, you know, national and international banking structures um, uh, in the world, right, right, right where we, um, you know, right on occupied land, right mm-hmm. in the middle of the city, not, not you know, the, the enablers of this, um, lethal carceral violence is, is right in the middle of um, our existence and we are mm. all uh, either enmeshed and either, either complicit or resisting. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just before you mentioned both um, the the recently announced um, Serco-run private women's prison in Grafton um, as well as the offshore death camps in Nauru and Manus, could you speak a bit about the importance of seeing seeing the, the fundamental links between these between these prisons between these um, death camps yeah. essentially yeah i think i think the fundamental the fundamental foundation of that makes um, you know australian prison camps and death camps possible is the fact that you know the the prison nation is founded on the the incarceration and the killing of Aboriginal people, and uh, Aboriginal people were the, the uh, were and are the, the very first abolitionists uh, on on their countries, on their sovereign nations, and continue to be. And just as we've seen this week with the with the hunting down and 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 uh, what I call killing of of two young uh, Yamaji um, young men in in the Swan River, the Devil Yerrigan. Um, there is no way to disconnect the, the hyper-racialised incarceration of Aboriginal people and, and the, the, the trans-castration in different punitive systems from child protection to prisons against young people to adult prisons from the capacity and the, um, the intent to incarcerate refugees, um, especially children. You know, it's a system that centres violence against children um, all through their lives and 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 their families and and um, and individuals as well as as members of a group and and w- when we went out after we targeted occupied Zerko, we went out to the um, prison prison against young people in Parkville you know we we we, were, we had been able to coordinate solidarity actions with um, young people that were held in the prison. Um, you know, it, it is very, very clear that, that this is a this carceral violence against children. You know, whether it's institutional abuse or carceral abuse, or the um, the demand that children have no political voice and political visibility and stand for the national anthem. 
you know, is, is critical to understanding why children are, are at death's door um, on, on, on the prison camps and the death camps in Nauru and why children are being hunted into and dying in custody in, in, in rivers and cells and, um, and why people continue to die. There is, there is an inextricable um, violent, violent connection between anti-Aboriginal blackness and the carceral state and the police state and um, anti-blackness in terms of the militarisation of police in Victoria and the targeting of black and brown refugee communities and South Sydney's communities and the violence and the, the violence of the deportation machine mm-hmm. um, and, and, and the role of um, private companies for profit in all of that. I mean, we had a, a, a large deportation of Tamil asylum seekers on the night of our action um, that was facilitated by, you know, a private corporation, two private corporations, both Serco and a company called Sky Traders, mm. um, which deported those asylum seekers to to, to danger and, possi- and possible death after long periods of indefinite detention. Mm. So our, our solidarity with the, the US prison strike seek to to join to join all of the all of the limbs of of mm. the violent carceral um, state and occupation. Mm. And and you mentioned just before the importance of seeing the links between the carceral state and the police state, in particular the current militarisation of the police here in Victoria. Um, could you please speak to that a bit more and just give listeners a bit of an overview of what's happening with um, Victoria Police and this rapid militarisation that we're seeing? Yeah, I mean, this, this, is, this is the third, what, what I call the, the third stage of the rapid militarisation because Victoria Police was, was and is a military and colonial occupying force. You know, it was, um, as, as a colonial force in what it evolved into the organisation, it was at the forefront of, of uh, colonial um, genocide and, and it adopted the worst and most violent practices uh, on this continent to to uh, attempt um, to dispossess um, sovereign Aboriginal people on this on you know the land which we now call Victoria, um, and then there there was the um, you know the violent suppression at um, the Eureka Stockade, and now we see um, this rapid militarisation. Um, uh, in the last 20 years, but especially in the last year, you know, uh, the arming of 500 members of the operational response unit in semi-automatic weapons. Now we ha- we haven't had that since, you, you know, Victoria Police troops shot mm-hmm. miners in the back at Eureka Stockade. You know, we haven't seen um, public order response teams using uh, not less than lethal, but you know, slightly less lethal rubber bullets mm-hmm. and flashbangs and 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 other other um, weapons of repression, which have all been used and tested in prisons and detention camps mm-hmm. all over the country and and in uprisings in, in 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 other countries. So, and it's all being consolidated in a very premeditated way for electoral gain leading up to both the state and federal elections. So, Victoria is being used as a template. Um, for a, a deeply and lethal racialized politics and predatory politics that where uh, racialized policing, racial profiling and militarization are the key weapons that um, link both the experience of young indigenous 
and young people of colour on the street and in their homes and in their schools, and, and they're channeling into the carceral system and into systems of death and dispossession and, and, um, into expressions of, you know, lethal colonial violence mm. like we've seen in, 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 in the chasing down of those two young men mm. into the devil Yarrigan in Perth by, by a paramilitary police unit, the tactical response group. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, it is so important to insist that this is precisely lethal colonial violence, you know, no matter how the police try to, you know, call certain, um, things less lethal weapons or whatever, um, you know, that this... this Absolutely. These, these are the same weapons that the Australian Defence Force uses against, exactly. you know, Occupy Palestine. It's the same weapons we see used in detention centres and prisons. It's the same weapons that were used in Ireland, you know, the oldest colony. And, um, you know, just because you take a bullet and you dip it in hard rubber or hard plastic yep. doesn't, um, doesn't mitigate its lethality when it strikes you in the head. Yep, exactly. And that this announcement of, um, you know, the new military-grade weapons, was it last week or whatever, um, you know, is and should be shocking, but also, as you're saying, profoundly not surprising, given it is the, the continuation of this logic um, of hyper-racialised and fatal colonial violence. Um, That's precisely right. That's precisely right. And when the, the last time Victoria Police had that many um, officers trained in long, long firearms was at the point, at, at, at the history of violent dispossession and genocide and at the Eureka stockade. You know, and if you're a unionist, if you're an Aboriginal person, if you're a person, you know, engaged in the fight for Aboriginal sovereignty, you know, you must be involved in resisting this type of repression. Yeah. And we're running out of time now, but just to wrap up, I was wondering, you know, I feel like often um, conversation, some conversations that I'm in around, um, you know, prison abolition often do look to the US a lot. You know, a lot of um, material comes out yeah. of there or often that's where sometimes um, people sort of imply that, you know, movement has come from. And what is so important about everything you're saying is that that's not the case at all, that there has always no. been and will always be um, an incredibly strong abolitionist movement here um, yes. in um, yes. in these occupied lands. Um, yeah. Could you just yeah, speak to that a yeah, bit to wrap up? Uh, yeah, I, 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 think, I think the reference to the US abolition movement and the US anti-slavery movement and uh, civil rights movement is actually an act of invisibility um, to the the deep and ongoing insurgent abolitionist movements founded by and and led by Aboriginal people, especially Aboriginal women in this country, from from the resistance of Barangaroo against um, um, Governor Philip. Um, and her, her, the resistance of women of the Gadigal Nation towards the imposition of the prison nation on their land, right through to the presence and the activism and the insurgency of, of mobs like Warriors Against Aboriginal Resistance. There is a continuum and a proud history of resistance to prisons. Um, and I think we often refer to the US because we're not, you know, as, as people implicated in, um, the US racial history like we are implicated in the genocidal racial history of this country. But it is critical to understand that the the fight for sovereignty, for land rights 
and against occupation is a, 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 a struggle against prisons, against the police state, against all the systems of, of um, dispossession and, and, um, and, and punishment, including the child protection system and mm. prisons against children, yeah. and that we need to we need to study this history. We need to um, support and enact and claim that history in our own struggles, and also understand the the incredible uh, resistance uh, of people who've been incarcerated in this land for 230 years, and incarcerated by this country. You know, whether in immigration detention centres in Manus and Nauru, in the form of you know Pacific kind of carceral colonialism or the, the the struggles against, you know, just a whole spectrum of incarceration from places like Palm Island to the use of locked hospitals to the, you know, to police chases, to resistance against um, police shootings and paramilitarism, um, the, the depth of history and the depth of the resistance and the continuity of that resistance is something mm. that should... Um, you know, absolutely catch a fire um, yep. in terms of abolitionist struggle and ab- abolitionist thinking and how profoundly it is led by, um, you know, incarcerated people. Absolutely. And that's such a yeah, powerful note to end on. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, thank, thank you for your time. Have you been a patient at Monash Health? Then we need your help. Because we care for patients from so many countries speaking so many different languages, we need your help to make the patient experience better. To make a real difference, register to be a consumer advisor. Visit the Monash Health website, monashhealth.org. Monash Health is a 3CR supporter. The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. Istra Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast on 855am. Um, just before, we had an incredible chat with um, Charindev Singh about the anti-Serco um, uh, action that occurred at the Serco headquarters here in Nam. And now we're actually going to jump straight into a chat with Melissa Lukashenko, who is an award-winning, um, multi-award-winning, sorry, guru writer. Her novel Malambimbi was awarded the Deloitte Queensland Literary Award for Fiction um, and won the Victorian Premier's Prize for Indigenous Writing and was long-listed for both the Stella Prize and Miles Franklin Awards, as well as the Dublin IMPAC Literary Prize in 2015. 
Melissa was awarded the 2016 Cal Fellowship to work on her new novel, Too Much Lip, which was released in August 2018. And that is exactly what we're going to be talking about this morning. Um, good morning, Melissa. Jingiwala from Me Engine, Brisbane. Thank you so much for making time to chat with us this morning. No worries. Um, so I was wondering... Yeah, we're essentially, this morning we're going to be chatting about, we're going to start at least by chatting about your new book, Too Much yep. Lip, um, yep. which I'm yeah, halfway through and can't put down. But I was wondering, could you just give listeners a bit of an overview of the book to begin? Yeah, well, the book is, um, it's set in the Aboriginal underclass in the country near South Wales. And I wrote it because uh, my last book, Mullumbimby, um, was a hit. And I sort of um, wanted to turn my attention in this book to Aboriginal lives of people that are really struggling. And in 2015, I interviewed Alex Walker for the Sydney Writers' Festival. And to do that, I read her first book, um, which is an intergenerational story similar to The Colour Purple, but um, different. And it looked at um, three generations of uh, how racism and poverty had affected the black American sharecropping family. And I thought, I want to do an intergenerational story too to look at what happens in a family that that begins with extreme violence and the the different trajectories that the siblings take um, in response to that in a family. And so that's how too much lip came about. And uh, I also wanted to write a high-energy book as a response to the kind of heaviness and uh, depression that, you know, we can sometimes slip into when we're faced with, you know, structural racism and sexism and um, homophobia. And I wanted to say, well, no, fuck that. Let's, let's actually see what happens when we get angry at the right people for the right reasons and take action. Mm. Um, yeah, and on that note of calling it like a high energy book, it's, I mean, you know, while, yeah, as you say, in some parts it's incredibly heavy, it's also profoundly funny. Um, I you... knew it had to be funny. <laughs> off the challenge because humour is, is actually the most difficult thing to write. Mm. And uh, so I, I said to myself, okay, look at this intergenerational story, but make it really funny and make it a high energy adventure at the same time. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And you also seem, you know, like in the beginning, you, you you very much like draw from different genres as well, you know, almost like spoofing um, yep. Western type scenarios yep. Yep. and then it sort of goes all <laughs> well, over the place. Well, someone once said there's only two stories and that is someone leaves town or someone arrives in town. <laughs> and so I had that in my mind when yep. Kerry, the main character, rides into the little country town that she's from on a stolen Harley. Mm. Um, to attend to grandfather's passing. And, uh, yes, that's why, yeah, Kerry arrives in town and mm. all bits are off kind of thing. Yeah. And could, could you talk a bit more about Kerry or, or more broadly, mm. I guess, yeah, your inspiration in creating characters like Kerry? Uh, I think with Kerry, uh, look, one of the questions I was asking myself was how might my life have gone if I never went to uni, if I'd stayed in Logan City? That was one question. And then another question was, how do I, how do I write a character that gives, um, you know, great intelligence and wit and strength as well as vulnerability to an underclass woman, which are qualities that I see, you know, in my work at Sisters Inside every week. These women that just, um, you know, they have the most unbelievable obstacles in their lives that would make 
you know, most Australians just fall down dead on the spot. And yet they keep going and they keep going with good humour and often with grace as well. So it's like, um, yeah, Kerry is an amalgam of lots of women I've known, mm. uh, white women as well as black women, but she's a bit of wish fulfilment there, you know, because who wouldn't like to ride back into their hometown on a stolen Harley and she's such a spunk (laughs) yeah yeah fight back you know the first section of the book which is the two halves the first section is called less is less uh and then the second part which you might not have gotten to is called if you don't fight you lose Mm. so it's an adventure story but it's about fighting back striking Mm. back Yeah. yeah and Actually, maybe I'll get to that in a moment. But first of all, you mentioned um, your work with um, Sisters Inside, which I believe yep. you were a founding member. Could yeah, you yeah, right. talk a bit more about um, the work you do with Sisters Inside? Yeah, well, Sisters Inside started um, in the late 80s inside Bogger Road um, with Debbie Kilroy being the driving force the whole way through. And then in the very early 90s, a group of outside women, of which I was one, met in um, West End here and under Debbie's kind of um, leadership we decided that uh, an external organisation was going to happen to advocate for, you know, prison abolition or decarceration and also act as a support service for women who were stuck in the system. And 20, I think it's been 25 years now and the organisation's going strong and we've got a conference coming up in November and uh, Angela Davis will be coming to our conference, same as she mm. does most years. Yeah, and so we, we provide a, a culturally safe space for women with lived prison experience um, and a lot of our clients, not clients, a lot of the women we work with, um, Murray women and um, Islander women. Actually, we've just opened a North Queensland branch in the last 12 months. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, trying to make some inroads into the lack of um, support and services for women up in the North Queensland there, which is sorely needed. Mm. And do you feel like your work with Sisters Inside um, impacts or influences your writing? Uh, it does. Um, I... I come and go from sisters at different points. I'll be working there and at other points I won't be actively involved. But, yeah, it does. And, you know, I've got uh, two brothers that have spent many years in the system themselves and so that feeds in. I've got extended family that are in and out of jail and uh, in and out of the, you know, the foster care system, the different things that I look at in the book. So it's not just sisters, it's my own extended family mm. as well and just the community generally. Yeah. But yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to shine a light on those experiences. Whereas in Mullumbimbi I was looking at a woman who was a curry woman that was more in the working class and wasn't um as impoverished and had a different set of challenges. Mm. And yeah, and, I guess, and it seems like you, as you say, those those influences um, find their way into your writing in many different ways, um, and in too much lip as well. For you know, the the mayor, the character of the mayor intends to build a private prison on the river bend, um, where some of the main characters' um, ancestors are buried. 
Could you, and you know, so we just before we spoke about um, with Chandev, our previous guest, um, we spoke about the um, private Circo-run women's prison um, in Grafton. Yeah. Do you, yeah? Do you have any views on that that you'd like to share with listeners this morning? I didn't know that there was a private prison proposed for Grafton when I um, plotted this novel out nearly three years ago now, and mm. so yeah, it's. Um, you know, you don't have to be a genius to see the trend towards um, monetising poverty and yeah. monetising mis- misery through constructing more and more private prisons and for the benefit of corporations at the expense of our families and communities. But, it, um, you know, as I was writing too much lip, the different aspects of the plot... Um, became clear to me that um, I was writing stuff a lot closer to home than I'd realised. You know, the um, so I'd plotted a story, you know, with the family uh, dramas, and it turned out that much more of those family dramas were present in my own family than I realised, and also the prison, the proposal for a, a private prison for profit on Bundjalung land, you know, was was true at the same time and I didn't know any of that so uh, yeah it's, it's funny how you can write stuff thinking it's fiction and mm. it turns out to be fact yeah absolutely um, and in in a separate interview at some at one point you've described too much lip as um, by far the hardest book that you've ever written um, mm. if yeah I mean if you feel comfortable obviously but why, why is that uh, it's the subject matter, because even though it's a funny book and it's an adventure story, I do go to some really dark places in it. And I did that deliberately. I thought, you know, if um, if Alice Walker can do it in my black American family, then I kind of have a responsibility as an Aboriginal writer and a feminist to, to go there um, as well and to kind of seize the nettle. But it, it was a very difficult decision to to write about family violence in the way that I did. And uh, I questioned myself. It took two years to write the book. And I questioned myself every single week I was writing. You know, there was quite a few sleepless nights. But um, I've had a really, really positive response from my Aboriginal readers. And, uh, yeah, one uh, Aboriginal feminist who I won't name um, told me that she sobbed on a plane reading this book and uh, you know I can't I can't really get much better feedback than that mm. um, from my black readers so I'm I'm glad I took that risk mm. and and earlier when we were chatting you you mentioned something about um, you know writing as a form of fighting back or fiction yeah. as a form of fighting back um, mm. yeah what can you unpack that a bit for us just as we're wrapping up I guess if you can't imagine the change that you want to see um, it's almost impossible to create it. And for lots of years, I've had a character in my, in the back of my mind, which is the protagonist in The Bone People, by the Maori author Kerry Hume. And her strength and her oddness and her determination to do the right thing by, um, yeah, by the child in that novel has it's sort of underpinned a lot of my thinking and a lot of my writing, even when I haven't been quite conscious of it. It's been there unconsciously. And so um, it's about creating 
creating characters and creating archetypes and heroes, I suppose, for my readers to say that, you know, we it, the temptation to sit around and be depressed and feel hopeless is always there, and that's what the system wants. You know, that's what that's what racists want. That's what capitalists want. They want us to sit around and feel like it's hopeless, but it's not. And so I wanted to create characters that embodied that spirit of of fighting back and of still retaining some humour and, you know, some sense of a good life being possible. Hmm. Yeah, wow. And unfortunately we're running out of time this morning, but um, to finish up, could you just let listeners know how can they, yeah, where can they grab a copy of this book and also how can they find out more about the Sisters Inside conference? Oh, okay. You can go to the Sisters Inside website. If you've got, if you've been to jail yourself as a woman or a girl, then it's free. Um, and if not, the registration details are at um, sistersinside.com.au, I think it is. Um, and as far as the book goes, go to your local library and ask for too much lip. And I think it's available as an e-book as well or from any good bookshop in Nam. Yeah, wonderful. Well, yeah, I'll definitely be coming up to the Sisters Inside conference. Um, okay. So cool. hope to meet you there. All right. Thank thanks you. so much for joining us this morning, Melissa. Okay, bye. Bye. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Just then we had a really amazing chat with Melissa Lukashenko, the award-winning author of Too Much Lip. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just 30 You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history on sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. You're listening to Summer Programming on 3CR Breakfast, bringing you some of the highlights and our favourite conversations that we've had during the year. For more details, visit 3cr.org.au slash breakfast.